We are in Acts chapter 16. If you'll turn there. If you remember, or in case you weren't with us, we are on the second missionary journey which has gone from Antioch up here through the Cilician Gates and uh, we have come to Lystra where Paul took hold of Timothy and he has joined the party as Paul and Silas, Barnabas and Mark have gone to Cyprus. Um, Paul then picks up Timothy and uh, as they go north they come here and they cross over into Europe. The gospel will go to Europe, from Europe it will go to the world. So he crosses over in Neapolis and then travels up to Philippi and that's where we're at right now. We're up here at Philippi. Paul's crossed over here and as he comes to Troas in verse 10 uh, before he crosses over Luke starts to use the, the personal pronoun we um, so we know that Luke has joined the party at this point in time was he practicing medicine in Troas we don't know um, but he now is part of it so there's four of them there's Paul and Silas Timothy and Luke traveling together Paul a Roman citizen, that will be important this evening. Silas, also a Roman citizen, because his name is written Selvanos, and we hear tonight in the study that he's a Roman. Uh, Luke, no doubtedly, undoubtedly a Roman citizen, because he had written to Theophilus, uh, Cratisty, probably a senator, and he was probably owned by, it was cheaper to have a doctor than Blue Cross and Blue Shield, so... He probably owned Luke and then set him free uh, after he wrote the Gospel of Luke to him. So no doubt as a free man in Rome with a license to practice medicine, he's also would be considered a Roman. The Timothy might be the one that uh, perhaps is not considered a Roman. His father was a Greek. That doesn't tell us he's a Roman citizen. They cross over. The man from Macedonia calls him, you remember. And as they come into Philippi, there's no synagogue there. First time, really, it's a completely pagan society. So he goes out by this river to pray where he hears that there was perhaps a habit of some to pray there. And there's a group of women when they get there. And they share the gospel with him. And this gal named Lydia turns to the Lord and her house So then she pleads with Paul. She's a seller of purple. She's a successful businesswoman. And she convinces Paul and Timothy and Luke. And then again, probably very strange for Silas, a Jew, a prophet, an elder from the Jerusalem church, to stay in the house of a Gentile. Maybe he's crossing that line for the first time. So they're at the house of Lydia. Now... Most scholars feel, because we just go through this quickly, and Luke kind of gives us details that way, they're probably in Philippi for about a year. That's what most scholars feel. So we see some quick things happen. Uh, We're going to find out that a church forms here in the house of Lydia. There's a congregation, and Paul is traveling through the city preaching the gospel. And it says in verse 16... 
that it came to pass as he went to prayer, this is a Sabbath day, that's when they went, a certain damsel, now the damsel, I know you've heard of a damsel in distress, this is probably a young girl, and it says she's possessed with the spirit of divination. Luke says she met us, so he's in this circumstance, and she brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So Dr. Luke tells us she has, and your translation may be different than spirit of divination. It may say spirit of python. That's what the Greek says. Because the mythology, again, in this part of the world now, we're separated from Judaism. Um, there is a cave up by Mount Olympus, about 80 miles north of Athens, I believe, and they believe that was the gateway to the underworld. And they believe there was a huge python, a snake, that guarded that way to the underworld. And that Apollos had come down and slaughtered that serpent. And now there was a priestess there. If you want it, it's called the Oracle of Delphi. People would come from all over the, the Mediterranean world to speak to her, have her prophesy to them. And she would go into the cave, the entrance of the underworld, and she would come out babbling and say, and then finally she would speak in their language and give them something. Now, she's not much of a, this, this girl claims to have now the same spirit of Python that comes on her, she, and, and she's making the people that own her much money. Uh, the world hasn't changed. Young girls are still being exploited, sadly, more than ever in our culture, behind the scenes and supposedly with some of the most quote-unquote respected people in our country. And she's being bringing great gain to them with her soothsaying. Now, she doesn't see ahead well as a soothsayer because she's going to get the demon's going to get cast out in a few verses. So don't know what they're up to. Again, the, the psychic hotline in Florida, when it went out of business, it said they never saw it coming. So, you know, people are amazed with the future. People, Nostradamus, Edgar Case, people like to read this stuff. Even unbelievers like to read the book of Revelation. The thing is now people are watching the news and it's a little more scary because it's all real. Where are we really going? It's all around us. So you and I as Christians now, we have the message that this broken, lost world is longing for. We should be looking for those opportunities to share the love of Jesus with this lost world. So it says here, she brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul notice, and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us, there's an article, the way of salvation, not a way. It doesn't use the name Jesus, but it's the way of salvation. So at least the demon's orthodox uh, here. El Elyon in the Hebrew is the most high God. 
And here it uses a Greek phrase that's used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, same word we have here, for El Elyon. So somehow she speaks of the Most High God. We know when the demoniac came to Jesus, he said, What have I to do with thee, thou son of the Most High God? So the, the dark realm understands who the Most High God is especially since Lucifer's fall, it was evident he wasn't going to be like the Most High, he wasn't going to go on the sides of the north, and so forth. So this spirit now, screaming, we don't know what, what the voice was like. <clears throat> Oregon, one of the church fathers, tell us they called Pythias, anybody with the spirit of Python, belly speakers, because the voice was so strange. It came from somewhere deep within them. Um, in fact, there's, it's ventriloquy. We get the word ventriloquist from it because some other voice, we use that now, some other voice speaking through. So I don't think she has a pleasant voice. She's a little girl with some, you know, something, something's coming through there. And she's following Paul and these guys around that are sharing the gospel. And she now says that these are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. It's interesting. It says, this she did many days. Now, I don't know how many is, but two is too much, you know. This she did many days, but Paul, now it says, being grieved, turned and said, notice this, not to the girl, to the spirit, I command thee... In the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, she follows him for many days. Paul doesn't do anything. You know, sometimes we see in the church today people like to immediately jump into some kind of spiritual situation. Paul doesn't do anything for many, many days. She's following them around screaming. These are servants of the Most High God. They've come to show us the way of salvation. People in Philippi knew about this, that it was going on. And Paul doesn't take the initiative to turn around and deal with this because whenever there's a miracle in the scripture, it's never human initiation. Any miracle takes place is always divine. And evidently Paul realizes there's no sense me turning around until the Lord gives me the unction to do that. And now he's grieved. There's no doubt that the Holy Spirit in him is grieved at this point in time. And, and it says, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. It means then. It doesn't mean it was an hour later. Uh, and you have to understand, again, exorcism. Have you seen the movie? The exorcist, you know, does it take days? You know, does the girl's head spin around and green ectoplasm come out? You know, there's none of that here. This is shocking to the Romans in Philippi because any exorcism that took place in their culture, there were all kinds of chanting and fasting. It was always a long, drawn-out process. And Paul just turns around and rebukes this demon, and the demon comes out. That was shocking to these people at Philippi. And it lends itself to what God wants to do there, no doubt. 
the demon comes out when he commands the demon. And when her noticed this master's plural, saw that the hope of their gains were gone. Now, the hope of their gains was not the girl. It was the he that came out, masculine, the demon that came out. When they saw that the hope of their gains were gone, they caught, plural, masters, they caught Paul and Silas, and they drew them into the marketplace, the agora, which would have been the court in the center of town, the market, and they took them there unto the rulers. Now, we're not told why Luke and Timothy don't get caught in this. Evidently, they're not there. It's just Paul and Silas in this scene. And these guys lay hold on them, and they drag them to the center of town there. When we read through this, this is big news that's happening there. And it says, they brought them then to the magistrates, which is the Greek word for the praetori, the, the, the highest ranking Roman official. There were two of them in the area. Um, in Thessalonica, the governor of Macedonia would be there because Thessalonica was the capital, but in each city, and we're told specifically, this city is a Roman colony. So it enjoys all of the privileges of the city of Rome itself. It's strictly under Roman jurisdiction, and the Romans had let their, their, um, their soldiers and their generals uh, retire there and made this specifically, they considered it Roman soil, like it was the city of Rome. So there are magistrates there. So they drag them now to these praetoria, these magistrates, saying, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. Now, understand, because this is a Roman colony, that had meaning to it. We're told in chapter 18, it says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. This is on the same missionary journey. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. So when these guys want to make a big deal out of this, they say to the Praetoria there, these magistrates, these Jews are here, which are supposed to be out of Roman territory. These Jews are here, and they're causing trouble exceedingly in our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Not the real reason. They're mad because they're losing their money. Um, the Romans enforced Caesar worship, but they didn't really knuckle down on somebody that had another religion or worship. You know, but this situation now is being brought before them, and they know, being responsible there, they have to do something about it. So they says they're teaching these customs that they're they're not in keeping with being Roman citizens. And the multitude now rose up, speaks of their voices, of their activity. They rose up together against them 
And the magistrates then rent off their clothes, Paul and Silas's, and commanded to beat them. So it's an interesting picture for me. I'm here, not for those guys there. Uh, he commanded, and that is in context of beating them, and it's an imperfect tense there. It means he kept commanding they should be beaten. Your translation may get a little more right. It's they should be beaten with rods. Uh, these are the lictors. They're called sergeants twice later in the chapter. And they held a specific place of upholding the Pretoria, their authority. And they would walk before the magistrates and they would carry this bundle of birch sticks, straight sticks that were bound together. There was 12 of them with an axe in the middle. And that signified the authority of Rome to flog or to decapitate. So here are these lictors walking in front of the magistrates and they're carrying these bundles of sticks that picture used to be on the back of our dimes here in America. There was the, it's called fascis, um, fascists. Um, Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial, where his two hands are, you'll see there's two fascists on each side, but with 13 rods because it was the original 13 colonies represented. Um, it's in the Capitol building. Uh, it's a sign of government and government being in authority. Uh, if you study Mussolini, every time he appeared on the balcony, there were the, the fascists. That's why it became a fascist government. The fasci were there, the fasci were there on either side of him, uh, which was a sign of old Rome and, and uh, a fascist government that ruled. The, the world hasn't seen anything like Rome since Rome. Now, it will, when we're out of here and the Roman Empire revives and the Antichrist has run the show, but it's seen nothing like that since. So these two magistrates come. In front of them are these guys carrying these bundles of sticks with an axe in the middle. And it says that then they were commanded by the magistrate. They took off the clothes from Paul and Silas and commanded, continued to command them to be beaten with rods. Um, the Jews would beat you 40 times minus one, 39 stripes. The Romans knew nothing about that. It says they're going to be meeting, beaten with many stripes here. They would beat, as long as the crowd was saying, you know, thumbs down, or the magistrate here it says they kept telling them to keep beating. And Paul's going to use the word later in the chapter for him and Silas that the skin, they were skinned or flayed. They beat the flesh off of their back. This was not a picnic. Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians, he says there, I've been in labors more than they all, in stripes above measure, in prisons. We're going to see some of that here in Philippi, more frequent, in death, often at the face of death, of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. It's hard to imagine, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. One of them's here in our study tonight in Philippi. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. We saw that 
in uh, Lystra there. And I don't want to talk about the shipwrecks. It freaks me out. <laughs> so he's here. They, he commands them. They keep beating them. And when they had laid notice many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. Now, this is very important. Charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, it says here, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stock. So there's a lot of illegality going on here. We're going to look at that. But they take Paul and Silas, and the, the jailer is under threat. And if these prisoners were to escape, he could be put to death. So there's excavated in Philippi today, and there's a, you can get a picture of it and look, the prison they believe that they were in. It's 2,000 years old. And they would have three levels in the prison. The com- communiaria was cells by the outside that had bars that light came in and air came in for less severe prisoners. There was light and air. Then there was the intoria, the inner toria, where you would still have bars so some air would get in, but there was no light. And then the most inner prison that was called the Tullianum was a dungeon, and there was no light. And they were thrown in there, and their feet are made fast in the stocks. They, they had these stocks that looked like big combs, like you would comb your hair. And they spread their feet apart as far as they could and jammed them between the teeth and then ran a metal rod over that so they couldn't get their feet out. So these two guys are sitting. They slam the door. They're in the dark. The only relief is if you could lay back. They couldn't lay back. Their backs are open. They're skinned. No doubt the floor is covered with human waste. That's the way the inner prisons were. If you guys remember the movie Ben-Hur, when they go down there and finally open the door and, the, and his mom and his sister has leprosy, you know, this is the kind of environment this is. It was always a few inches deep in human waste, and it was black, and there was no light, and they take Paul and Silas. You know, they must be thinking, okay, the man from Macedonia, are you sure you dreamed that, Paul? Man from Macedonia, come over here and help us, you know. Uh, I can't believe we got tailwinds to make this trip. You know, you just think of all the things that happened to get them here. And now this guy is charged to keep them safely. And having received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, and at midnight, you guys know this. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Paul and and Silas begin to sing. If I was there, Paul would have been singing solo. You know, are you kidding me? My skin, blood's running down, my back is drying. I can't even lay down. I can't see nothing. My legs are killing me. And you want to sing? Now, this is a good pair, though. We're told that Silas is a prophet. We don't know what kind of relationship, to what depth he's enjoyed with the Lord. 
We know that Jesus has appeared to Paul, so they must have had some remarkable conversations. And when the Lord appeared to Paul, he told him, you're going to go and you're going to suffer these things for my name's sake. It's very interesting. It says they prayed and sang, and it's a strange combination for you scholars of a present participle and imperfect tense that means their praying was their singing. That was their praying. It was in song. I love it here, again, in sanctuary when we sing songs in the first person, you know, because it's a prayer as well. And sometimes it's so beautiful to watch you guys raise your hands. I'm listening. I'm watching. And the words are direct in the first person directly to the Lord. And it is a, that's what happens here. So, I, you know, we wonder, what were they singing? They only, they're Jews. They only got one songbook, you know. Psalm 3 says, Lord, how are they increased to trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there are that say of my soul, there is no help for him. In God, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. I cried unto the Lord of my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept. I awake because the Lord sustained me. Are they singing any of that? Psalm 32 says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. Psalm 42 uh, says this, um, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, and from the hills of Mitzar, deep calleth unto deep, that the noise of thy water spouts, all thy waves and billows are gone over me, yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. Job 35 talks about God giving him songs in the night. So he's they're probably singing some of the psalms. If you go through the psalms on your own, you just read the ones, you know, go on your whatever app or concordance, and just look up all the words deliverance. And you, you think, I bet these guys are singing some of these songs about the deliverance of the Lord. And I'm thinking, I am such a wimp. You know, I don't like to sing in traffic let alone chained in the dark in a painful position with all my skin ripped off. You know, I look at these guys and think, this is unbelievable. And this is how the, the Lord put all these things in place to get them to Philippi on time. <clears throat> and it says they their praying was singing. And it says, and the prisoners, it says, heard them. The, the Greek is they listened Intently, No Roman prison since the Roman Republic had ever experienced anything like this. And the night's still young. There's never been a Roman prison that, that had two guys chained in the Tullianum that were, that were flayed, worshiping God and singing. And the other prisoners evidently settled down now, and it says they're listening intently. That's important. 
And suddenly, which is good, that means it happened pretty fast, I like that. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, an interesting phrase, and everyone's bands were loosed, is an interesting phrase. So they were down there, in, earlier in the book of Acts, in Jerusalem amongst the Jews, twice God uses an angel to set them free. This is pagan territory, so he uses an earthquake. People say, well, that's a natural phenomenon. It ain't when God sends it and everybody's chains fall off and everybody's doors open. This is as supernatural. And certainly the, the pagan culture would understand this. The, the, the foundations underneath, everything starts to rumble. And, and, it, and it says the doors were open. It, it, you know, tr some try to say, well, it means they fell off the hinges. No, it doesn't. It says they flew open these locked doors. And everyone's bands were loose. Some try to say, well, the, the spikes came out of the wall. The, no, it, what it says is they fell off. You study, study the, the language. The, the, everything that restrained them was gone. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had fled. So he comes out, doesn't stay up wherever he's sleeping. He comes down, you know, puts on his sword, comes down, and when he sees the doors open, he knows the Romans will take him and torture him, and he's going to die a terrible death. So he would rather take his own life and die quickly. So he draws his sword out, and he's going to take his life. Look. When all is gone, people still do this today. When they believe all is gone, and all wasn't gone here. But people believe that's it. Everything's gone. It'll never straighten out. It can never get fixed. It's all gone. They still think of the same thing, taking their lives. It's heartbreaking. Now, when an unbeliever takes their life, Satan rejoices because they're gone forever. But Christians can be tempted in this way as well. Watch what happens here. This man is going to take his own life. And it says, but Paul, who must see this, Paul cried out in a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm. And notice this, for we, plural, are all here. The, the, all the prisoners are still there. Paul's in charge by now. He's the warden. And uh, you know these guys were listening to them sing, listening intently. All of a sudden there's an earthquake and all their chains fall off, all the doors open up. They must have come out and said to Paul, uh, uh, what next? What do we do now? And Paul must have said, everybody, you know, just hunker down. You, you need to just, probably to say hunker, but you need to just stay here right now. And the warden, the prison guard, comes out and sees the doors open, so he's going to take his own life. And Paul cries out, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. We're, we're, we're all here. And, and it's interesting, because Paul isn't always freed. He's going to spend a lot of time in other prisons for a long time, particularly Rome, Caesarea. 
It says, we are all here. Then it says, he, the jailer, called for a light. He has guards. He doesn't keep a prison by himself. Somebody must come with a torch and sprang in and he came, sees all the prisoners there. He comes trembling and falls down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, plural, what must I do to be saved? Is this the man from Macedonia? What must I do to be saved? And they, together, said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. So, it's interesting to, to see here, the answer is you need to do this. You need to believe. That's an imperative. You have to do this. You have to believe. Have to believe what? Have to believe on Jesus, the next word in the process. And then it says, and thou shalt be saved, singular, future, passive. You can't believe for anybody else. You can only believe for yourself. You can't believe for your friends. Thou shalt, singular, be saved, passive. You don't do the saving. What you do is you believe. You trust. You put your weight on Jesus. You do that. And the miraculous part of it takes place. It's passive. You don't do anything to do with that. He then indwells you. Regeneration. Eternal life. The new birth. And you know these guys, they're serious. This man and his house, they're not thinking, well, can you explain this a little more? You know, what's the difference between you and the Buddhists? None of that's going on here. They say to him, believe thou, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the step after that is, thou shalt be saved. Now notice, and thy house. They're He's asking him because this girl who had upset the whole town and said, these are the servants of El Elyon, the Most High God, and they show unto us the way of salvation. This guy, Jailer, had heard that for days, evidently. Now this miracle takes place. Paul and Silas kept everybody in the prison. He comes and falls down and says, all right, uncle, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? He, he sees it. And they say, well, you must believe and that belief must be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then salvation is the work that God will do in your life. Then look, a lot of us, you know, have applied this to our own home and our own family. That's not the context. I can't teach you that what this is saying is if you get saved, your whole house will get saved as well. But God can speak that to your heart as a promise. There can be rhema on your end. You know, I, I had a friend up in near Rochester, New York, that was in the hospital dying of bowel cancer. It was through his bowels. And he was doing his devotions in the morning, and there it said, I will build up the old waste places. And he was healed that day. Now, you could never take that verse to somebody and say, this is the bowel cancer verse, you know. And this, no, no, it's about rebuilding Jerusalem and, you know. But it, for him, it was rhema. God spoke it to his heart. 
And if God has promised you that your household is going to be saved, never let go of it. Hold on to it. Pray and pray and pray. My mom was 19 years before she got saved after me. My dad, longer than that. They are both in heaven now. I'm going to see them again. My sister's saved. So many of my relatives are saved. If God speaks it to you, you're saved. Your household is going to be saved as well. Don't let go of that for anything. Hold on to it. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, of course. Notice this, and to all that were in his house, his whole family. And Paul probably shared his testimony. Hey, you know, you're worried about getting saved. I was slaughtering Christians. I was making people blaspheme the name of Jesus to the point of a sword. This is who I was. This is what happened. You know, I, I come from Jerusalem with authority. This is what I was doing. And he saved me. He does the saving. If you'll believe. He'll do the saving. Imagine, wouldn't you love to sit and and to have listened to this witnessing that they did with this family? And it says then, when he had brought them, I'm sorry, verse 33, and he took them, Paul, the same hour of the night. Now, it started at midnight, so it's not early. I mean, it's not earlier in the evening. He washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway. So this guy now has got Paul and, and Silas. He's, he's cleaning the wounds on their back. Whatever medicine, whatever they may have had, he's doing his best. Wherever that water is. Is it a stream? We don't know that. Um, is it just water in an earthen vessel? We don't know that. But it says, then... Paul and Silas baptized the jailer and his whole family. That means they're convinced the conversion is genuine or they never would have done it. So this man and his family now are saved. And it says, when he had brought them into his house, the Greek says he brought them up into his house. So wherever the baptism and washing, it was somewhere lower. He set meat before them. That's food, but I like the word meat. He set meat before them, and he rejoiced, this jailer, who wanted to kill himself a few verses before this. Because by his assessment, it was no, what's the point? My, My life, my name is mud. Life has fallen apart. I got nothing. I got nothing. My family left, my wife left, my husband left, my job's gone, my health is gone. I got nothing. What's the point? And here he is, a few verses later, it says he's rejoicing and believing in God with all of his house. Now, it says, and when it was day. Now, evidently what happens is after they enjoy a meal with them, Paul and Silas go back into the dungeon. Because they don't want to get the jailer in trouble. He's a new convert. And you're going to see when the magistrates come, they take them out, it says, of the prison. So Paul and Silas go back in. I'd have headed out of town. They go back in the jail. They have a motive. It says, and when it was day, the magistrates now sent the sergeants That word is rod bearers in the Greek. These are the lictors that worked for them. They sent the sergeants. These are the men that had beaten them. 
saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison that had fed Paul and washed his wounds told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. The jailer thinks this is great. He doesn't know Paul. But Paul said unto them, eh, these guys have beaten us, skinned us, flayed us. They've beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into the prison, and now do they thrust us out privately? Nah. Verily, truly, let them come, the magistrates themselves, and fetch us out if they want us out of here. So, you know, this is Paul. He says, you know what they humiliate us? They beat us public. There was no trial. You read one of the great jurors in the 500 years before this, Cicero. You read some of the things he says about this is this. If you kill a Roman, it's fraternize. patronize. You've killed somebody in your family. If you beat a Roman citizen, you deserve to be put to death. You know, you read their laws were incredible. And they've taken... Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens, no trial. They weren't heard. They took them and immediately, you know, made the decree to beat them and keep beating them. Then they took them and threw them into the dungeon, which you weren't allowed to do the Roman citizen either, without a trial. So they've broken these Roman laws. If the governor of Macedonia, of Macedonia in Thessalonica hears what these magistrates did. They're done. They're done. Paul understands that there's this young church at Philippi, which will be the church wherever he travels in Europe that's going to support him. He keeps saying, I thank God when I remember you guys. My heart is so warmed. This church at Philippi always supported him. You know, this, this was a special place to him. And Paul knew because it was a Roman colony the magistrates need to get into their mind. They may have some deal with the Jews, but they have nothing against Christians. And they have no authority here if Roman Christians are worshiping to do anything to them. And Paul wanted to make sure to secure this new church, Lydia, this jailer, the Roman believers that were there. So Paul said, are you kidding? They humiliate us openly. They rip the skin off our back. And he said, now they want us to slip out and disappear. He says, no, privately, but let them come themselves. They want us out of here. Let them fetch us. And the sergeants, the lictors, the one that carry the, the rods and the axe, told these words to the magistrates. And they, the magistrates, feared, is the Greek word, they were in terror when they heard that, that uh, Paul and Silas were Romans. So they, tells us here, Silas also a Roman. So they're in terror when they are. These are Roman citizens. We did this. And, and they're, they're completely freaked out at this point in time. And they came, the magistrates. And besought them, look, here comes the magistrates, and they beg them. They came and besought them and brought them out and then desired, not commanded, 
them to depart out of the city. You know, because the, the crowds were screaming, this whole thing went on. It was no secret what they had done. And now if the whole city finds out they were Roman citizens, somebody's going to tell their uncle who works for the governor or something. You know? So he begs them, you know, to, they beg them to leave. And, and Paul now has set this up so they dare not mess with any other Roman Christians. And it says they, now Luke is looking at them again. They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, there's a congregation there, they comforted them and they departed. So you want to insight on this church, you read Philippians in your spare time this week. Evidently, Luke stays behind, and so does Timothy. In chapter 17, Timothy shows up again. Luke doesn't change the language from they to we till we get back to chapter 20. That's when he really shows up with Paul again. So Timothy is a man commended to Paul, a godly man. Church fathers told us he did many miracles before he was killed in Ephesus. Um, Luke, the physician, is there, and they stay at this house, this church, house church at Lydia, to encourage the brethren to work there and so forth. When we go into chapter 17, if the Lord tarries next week, there, Paul will end up at Thessalonica, and uh, he, he, he tells them there about what God, you know, had done to them, when they were in Thessalonica and when they were in Philippi, how they've been miserably treated. Uh, and you can read that in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, I believe he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel with much contention. So he said, he said it wasn't easy when he got to, Mas- to, to Thessalonica, the, the capital of Macedonia. And he said, and you know how bad we were treated in Philippi. And even with that as a backdrop, we did not hesitate to speak the gospel to you. You would think if you went through that, I just said, Lord, can we like just go to Club Med for a couple of weeks here? You send us right back in the lion's den from this situation. My back's not even healed yet. But these are men who knew Jesus Christ. These are men who knew his presence. Paul knew his face. Paul's going to say, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What do you do with somebody like that? When he was in Lystra, he was stoned, probably dead at that point. Because about 14 years after that, again, he says, I knew a man 14 years ago, whether he was in the body or in the spirit, I have no idea. But he was caught up to the third heaven, and he saw things that were unspeakable. It would be a crime to try to utter them. That's why the Lord didn't have him write the book of Revelation. He just said, 
can't tell you what I saw. It just would be a crime. Whereas John's more mystic. He writes the whole thing. You know, John's a great one for that job. Um, but, but these two now, we follow them. If you'll read ahead into chapter 17 as they leave here. And they're in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. And then they're driven out. Now, the interesting thing about that is you read First and Second Thessalonians. Paul writes to a church that's three weeks old about the rapture, about the Antichrist, about the second coming, about the necessity to be ready, about the fact that we're not of the you have no need that I run into your brethren concerning the, you know times and seasons. You yourselves know perfectly well the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. And he, this is a baby church, three weeks old, because I listened to quote unquote scholars say, well, prophecy's not important, really. I'll listen to Paul if you don't mind. He went right into the blessed hope with this young church, only three weeks old, and had to move on from there at the stake of their lives. They fled into Berea. Bereas were more noble because they searched the scripture to see if what he said was true. Just, But remarkable things ahead. So these guys, beckoned by the Lord, man from Macedonia, come over. You think, this is great. The winds are back. They had a straight course, which means they didn't have to tack back and forth to get there. They made it in three days, going to be five to seven days on the way back. Incredible journey. God blessing them, coming then into Philippi and going out by this river. And here are these women that are praying. They get saved. A home church is established. They're able to go through Philippi preaching the gospel openly. And, of course, then this girl starts I hope we're going to see this girl in heaven, by the way. Paul was bugged with the demon, not with the girl. It says he rebuked him and he came out, not the girl. And they had no use for her after that because she wasn't bringing in any money anymore. Isn't it sad what men will do to women these days when they don't bring money in anymore? And right away, because everybody screams, whoever screams the loudest wins these days. Because of the cancel culture, Paul and Silas didn't get to say anything. They're beaten, they're thrown in prison. Roman law is broken left and right. The jailer's going to commit suicide, and Paul spares his life. Threw him in the dungeon, chained his legs in this uncomfortable, torturous position, And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. He didn't say, go on, smarty pants. You know, we might have done that. He says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here, all the prisoners. Paul's in charge. And the man falls down and falls apart, right on the verge of taking his life. And all of a sudden, life is in front of him. He's giving his life. Bathes Paul and Silas, cleans their wounds, feeds them his whole house listens to their testimony and comes to the knowledge of Christ they're all baptized and then before morning Paul says well Sinai better head back to the dungeon think he can chain, chain our legs back in those things again maybe a little closer together so it don't hurt so bad but we better get down there because we don't want you to get in trouble for letting us out 
I wonder what all the other prisoners, really? We have to go back? Yeah, 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 just go back, would you please? And how many of them, when they were let out locally, became believers? They were there when it was shaken. They were there listening to the singing and the prayers. They knew something supernatural had happened. And now this church in Philippi has great safety because Paul said, we ain't going nowhere until you get the magistrates down here and they can beg us to leave. Because I never want to hear that a Christian in Philippi is mistreated again by another Roman. Great stage is set. You read the letter to the Philippians. It's amazing how much heart is there and how much he loved this church and how much he communed with them. Um, next week, Lord willing, we will head off chapter 17 into Thessalonica. So let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these things. And, Lord, the kind of some lessons here I really don't want to learn in some ways, Lord. You know me, Lord. and I, I be, But I do believe, as Corey Den Boone says, that in the hour you need it, the grace will be given, Lord. We live in such a different culture, Lord. We take a little bit of pressure and we don't know what to do. And, and there's more people in this city that were in Philippi that are lost. Give us grace, Lord. Cause us to be contagious. Let the love of Christ be shed abroad from our hearts by, the Lord, the power of your spirit. We believe as we ask those things, we're praying according to your will. Lord, we look at this chapter and, Lord, we want to sit alone with you, Lord, and ask if, if we can have songs in the night, Lord. At the darkest point of our lives, we, will we be able, Lord, to lift our heads, to sing your praise? Lord, let what's inside of us outweigh what's outside of us. Let the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, Father, that shines in our heart be brighter than all of the darkness that's around us. Let your love, Lord, flow, Lord. Songs of deliverance, Lord, and salvation. We, we ask these things of you, Lord. You haven't put this to the page so we can just kind of skim through, Lord. You have something for each of us. We're your kids, Lord. Pray for anyone that may be listening anywhere that's thinking about taking their life because they think everything's gone. Lord, still them. Speak to them. Don't harm yourself. Lord, bring them into the light. Renew them. Save them. We look to you, Lord, and we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Mm -hmm.